0: it's important to ask the question, why are we here? And the answer is not easy, but it deserves some investigation. We can see that each one of us had and has a personal aspiration to be here, having made a decision some weeks or months ago and having undertaken the requisite requirements for being accepted into the course and preparing to leave our life at home, at work, for some period of time, and then making our personal effort to be here. There's also the intention and effort and foresight of... um, 30 or 40 people that are on staff here and the unknown number of supporters and board members and uh, donors that have uh, purchased, improved, and maintained and operated this center for 35 years. There's other conditions that just make that are weaving this moment into existence, many of which we don't even, we're do not not even aware of. And yet, without them, we wouldn't be here. But there's one condition that I want to speak about tonight. And I want to introduce it by telling a story. It's said that hundreds of thousands of eons or lifetimes and decades ago, a long time, there was an ascetic named Sumedha who was living in the then current area of India. And it is said that this ascetic had so purified his mind that if he had heard a single teaching of a Buddha, he would have become uh, uh, instantly freed or enlightened, awakened. One day on his alms round into a village, he saw that the village was in preparation for some event, inquired what it was, and was told that the Buddha of that day, Dipankara Buddha, was coming to town. And like all the villagers, he was excited about that and prepared a section of the pathway for the Buddha. And when they, he saw the Buddha coming down the path, he was struck by the nobility, Uh, the radiance, uh, the demeanor of the Buddha. And he saw the effect that the Buddha was having on the villagers and himself. And he vowed then to one day become a Buddha. In his mind, he fixed this firm aspiration that one day he would become a Buddha. And as the story goes, the myth or the story, uh, Dipankra Buddha caught the vibe, looked at this ascetic on the side of the road and said hmm, let me check out his karmic record here. Uh, <laughs> did a quick scan of the karmic record and the, the nobility, the aspiration and, and and saw that, indeed, this ascetic would one day, if he continued with the aspiration, would one day become a Buddha. to 2,600 years ago, that mind stream was born in India as a prince or a son of a nobleman. And after some 20-some years in the living in the royal palaces, undertook his spiritual disciplines and became the Buddha of our day and age. When he awoke to the truth he became Gotama Buddha. What he realized encoded in the Four Noble Truths and other discourses he taught for 45 years to men, women, monks, nuns, nobility, paupers, farmers, a whole range of people, and what they heard, they practiced and realized to some degree, and passed it on from generation to generation for the tw- past 2,500 years until it arrives here in America. Now, hundreds of eons and 2,500 years later, the teachings of the Buddha arrive here. There isn't any one of us in this room that knows of this ascetic Sumedha. But because of his aspiration and his enduring effort to become a Buddha, we have reason to be here, to hear his teachings, to practice, to realize to the degree we can, and to pass on to the next generation. What makes an intention like the ascetic Sumedha had, what makes it so powerful that it affects hundreds of thousands, millions of beings for an incalculable length of time after that. We have intentions every day, all kinds of noble and otherwise intentions to do this, to do that. And, and sometimes they don't carry an effect for 10 minutes, let alone 10 days or 10 years, or 10 lifetimes. And yet, We, too, have the potential within this mind that we're becoming so intimately familiar with. We have the potential to develop the power of our intention, just like that ascetic. This intention the setting of an aspiration or any other intention is the act of karma. It is the active karma of this life whenever we intend to do anything. The Buddha said, it is intention that is karma. Now, karma is an articulation of the law of cause and effect. And in the short form, the law of karma says, if you act and if you speak and if you think, motivated by attachment, aversion, confusion, the result will be unpleasant. On the other hand, if your actions in speaking thinking and acting are motivated or are rooted in non-attachment or generosity, non-aversion or loving-kindness, non-delusion or wisdom, then the result of those actions will be pleasant. It's also said that the more powerful the intention the more significant the result. It's also said that every action, every karmic act, every time we think or speak or move in the world, plants seeds in the mind that condition innumerable results. And it's also said that whatever we experience now the quality of pleasant unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant is the is conditioned by innumerable actions taken in the past the law of karma operates at all time whether we know it and believe it or not So, who ordered this weather? (laughs) Well, it's a given fact. The weather today is hot and humid and whatever it is. That's not caused by karma. That's caused by scientific principles of moisture and heat and all that. But how you experience it, as pleasant, or unpleasant or neither is the result of your karma. How you respond to it now with patience and endurance and acceptance or irritation and frustration and struggle is current karma sure to produce results in the future. When I say that the law of karma is an articulation of what has been observed, you know, there are geneticists or botanists or whatever that area of science is that have studied plant propagation due to seeds. And they know, and they've told us, that if you take an apple seed or seed from an apple and you plant it, you will get an apple sprout, an apple tree that will produce something. An apple, not an orange, not a banana, not a mango. But they know it'll be an apple. We also have scientists that have studied the the weather as it unfolds over the face of the earth seasonally. And they have articulated the law of, weather patterns and they can see why and how things are the way they are there are those who have studied the unfolding of the mind for their whole lives building on the knowledge of others who spent their whole lives observing the unfolding of their mind and they have come to articulate what it is they have learned what it is they've observed as the natural law of the unfolding of the mind. And this is the law of karma. We don't know it, just like we don't really know from our own experience that if you plant an orange seed, you'll get an orange tree. There's there's probably not many of us in the room that have seen that firsthand for ourselves, but we believe it. The law of karma is equally not observed so distinctly by each one of us, and yet we can get an in, in intuitive sense that the law of karma may have something going for it. There may be some way to validate it, to, to look in our own life, and to see some level of confirmation of it. Why is it important that we hear of the law of karma? It's important because without understanding some of the large forces at play in our lives, we can get lost in the minutia of the day-to-day events and think and, and ascribe greater value and meaning to them than they warrant. And we miss the big picture. So when we hear of the law of karma, it is an ally in our practice. It supports making an effort to walk the path that would fulfill our aspiration. Because even though we don't see the results today of all the effort we've made, in fulfillment of our aspiration, we can trust, we can have faith, we can believe that it is worth making the effort. It also helps to support our making, or at least reflecting on, the choices and the decisions we make in life and what the possible consequences of them will be. You know, in nature, Robert Ingersoll says, in nature, there's neither rewards nor punishment. There are consequences. And the same can be said for our actions and the unfolding of our mind. If we act in such a way that we receive unpleasant experience, it's not because we're being punished for having done something wrong. It is a natural consequence of certain behaviors to be experienced as unpleasantness. When we understand that, we can look at our own experience, have some understanding of where it's coming from, and know that how we respond to it plants the seeds of our future experience. It helps support wise decisions, it helps support right effort. It offers an understanding of habit and the power of practice to decondition habit. We don't have to act habitually for the rest of our life. If we see that something is unskillful and it causes ourselves or others unpleasantness or suffering of one kind or another, we can change. We can plant other seeds and reap other fruit. And it's an understanding that the law of karma offers us really a way out of the suffering, the unhappiness, the stressful conditions of our life. And it is such an important factor, such an important piece that it's worth considering. But I should mention that not everything we experience is a result of karma. As I mentioned, the weather is not caused by your karma, or mine either. Actions, or karmic actions, don't uh, produce certain results. They don't mandate certain results, but they they apply a condition to results. But just as there are many conditions coming into play here, karma is one of them, the weather is one of them, and there's many other conditions at play in weaving this moment into experience. So we don't want to blame everything on karma, and neither do we want to assume that if we act from a wholesome karmic place that it's going to have all the results that we can uh, immediately imagine. The Buddha said, Inconceivable is the beginning of this wandering on in birth and death. Not to be discovered is a first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening, through this round of rebirth. We've been doing this a long time. The Buddha said there's no way to discover the beginning of how long we have been looking for happiness and security and peace in all the wrong places. He goes on to say that we should be fed up with it by now. And yet it's not that easy, even when we're fed up with it, to know what is the path of practice to disentangle our hearts from this endless seeking. When I speak about karma as intention, karma is action and the intention of the action, I'm speaking about two things. One is the motivation, the rationale, the foundation that fuels the thought, the, speeching, the speaking, and the acting. Whether it's wholesome, whether it's unwholesome, whether it's considerate of ourself and others, whether it's careless, this is the, the motivation, the rationale for doing something. But I'm also talking about that moment of impulse in the mind that, that actually is the go button, you know, or it's the send button. You've composed the email, and you've, you've, you've put all your intentions into it, all your uh, rationale and all your explanations, and at some point, you hit the send button. And there's an impulse that sends it out through the mind to have its effect. So intention or karma is both of these, the rationale and that impulse moment that activates the rationale. So when I say that there's this impulse to act and there's this rationale that has or conditions effects, what is it that makes our intentions either so powerful or so insignificant. The ascetic had a tremendously powerful intention and aspiration. Well, we have an aspiration. You've all seen some urgency, some interest, some direction that you're moving in life, and you're making this effort which is not insignificant to fulfill it. What what will make your actions on behalf of fulfilling your aspiration, what will make it effective? What will make it work? What will bring the result that we aspire to? There are a few conditions. The first is the amount of energy in the mind when we make this aspiration when we have this intention. If, if, the, if the energy of the mind is very weak and lethargic and kind of mm, dissipated, well, you can see. The intention has no fuel to accomplish anything. On the other hand, if the mind is energetic and bright and dynamic and really alive and, it, and the intention arises in the mind, then there's, a, there's an enlivening of the intention, an activating of it, a moving it into into action. So the amount of energy in the mind is one. The frequency with which we arouse that intention, if you just think once, oh, yeah, I'd like to wake up and forget it, well, it's not likely to have so much of an effect. On the other hand, if we reaffirm that aspiration frequently with an energetic mind, not that we're hanging on to it, it's just that we reaffirm, this is the direction I want to go, this is definitely the direction I want to go, day after day, week after week, sitting after sitting, moment after moment within each sitting, the frequency with which we arouse that intention has a powerful effect the energy of the mind, the frequency of the intention. There's a third condition that makes our intentions powerful, and that is the purity of the mind. When the mind is clean, when the mind is free of delusion, when the mind is free of attachment, when the mind is free of aversion, and it's clean, then it sees the means to the end it sees how to get there it understands what the direction of practice is and so through our efforts these last few days to see and to put aside to recognize and put aside the unwholesome states of mind we purify the mind and as we purify the mind the direction of our aspiration becomes clearer It becomes a little cleaner, it arises more frequently, and so it has a much more significant or powerful effect. Every moment of intention is as if we are planting a seed. Now, you know, you've seen today, While we may sit down with the intention to be mindful for 45 minutes and we we try as best we can to plant those seeds, some of them just do not sprout and we are not so mindful. But that doesn't mean the seed didn't get planted. We had the intention. We made the effort. We dropped this seed into the mind to be mindful, to be aware. If the conditions are there to support it, we experience a moment or more of mindfulness, great. If not, we'll plan another one and another one and another one. Did you ever wonder, you know, you get lost in these trains of thought, you know, you're doing your best, but nevertheless, you get lost in these trains of thought, and you're off in la-la land, not even aware that you're thinking have no idea what you're thinking about, whether you like it or not. You get on a train in the middle of the night. You're heading off in a direction you don't know, passing through villages and towns and terrain that you have no idea what's coming next. And at some point, thankfully, the sun rises, and you get off the train somewhere. Did you ever ask yourself, why does it come to an end? Why does that train of thought come to an end? one of those seeds of mindfulness sprouted and saved you from this endless journey. (laughs) If all we do on this retreat is plant seeds, plant seeds. They will eventually sprout when conditions are, are ripe. They'll sprout and save you from endless wandering in oblivion. But we can't say that karma is stored in the body or karma is stored in the mind, just as there's no apple inside of an apple seed, but the potential is there. But an apple seed, an orange seed, a mango seed, or a karmic seed has to be planted in soil and has to be nurtured with other conditions, water, sunlight, soil, and probably a lot of other things that I'm not familiar with, but stuff. You know, There are other conditions that need to uh, impact and have their effect on this seed for it to produce a sprout. And then there are innumerable other conditions that have to nurture that sprout to become a plant, to become a, uh, a flower, to become a fruit, and to ripen so that we get the taste of it. Well, so too with our karmic seeds. What, we should ask, is the soil for all of these karmic seeds that we're planting? The mind. We're planting these seeds in the mind. And if the mind is well prepared, then these seeds will sprout and produce their fruit. But if the mind is not prepared and it's kind of you know uh contaminated it's overgrown with weeds and uh other unpleasant things then those seeds don't have a chance by practicing we prepare the mind for wholesome seeds and when those seeds land in a wholesome mind the conditions that support the sprouting of wholesomeness come to Nurture those seeds. But the seeds that we've planted of unwholesome karma, and you may have seen some residue of that. You know, we, uh, let's face it, we've all done everything too many times, and the seeds are still there. They're just waiting for the right conditions to sprout. But being here in a situation where we purify our mind and purify our speech and are really aspiring to awaken doesn't give those unwholesome seeds the opportunity to sprout. They just don't stand a chance in the purity of the mind. They need a kind of contaminated, dusty, and kind a of murky mind, and then they sprout. But the f- wholesome deeds of the past, the karmic practices of the past, or the, or the wholesome dharma practices of the past, come to support continuing dharma practice now. did you ever did you ever you know when you first heard the dharma or you first read the dharma you know you heard somebody speaking or you read a book or you just meditated and it just went clunk oh, i get it a light goes off and you think god this is so this is so obvious this is this is this is it this okay great i remember when i did my first retreat I went, you know, I didn't. I never read any Dharma books. I didn't know meditation. I didn't know anybody who meditated. It was a. It was an accident. <laughs> or so I thought. <laughs> and yet, when I heard those talks and did that practice, I said, "I realized, I saw. I felt. This is what I've known my whole life, but I've never heard it. How'd that happen? Well." There were some seeds in the mind that got activated and sprouted from far into the past when I made the effort in this lifetime to purify the mind, purify an aspiration, and those seeds sprout to come support it. And as we practice here, we continue to plant seeds and reap the harvest of prior wholesome seeds that support our practice. After I'd done um, a couple of retreats, I came on staff here. And the year that I was on staff in 78, there was uh, a Burmese monk came to uh, speak here. And he was the first Burmese monk that had come to America, as I as I recall. His name was Tongpulo Sayadaw, And Tongpulo Sayadaw was one of those uh, just rare and exceptional uh, monks of the last century in Burma. In his uh, biography, if you will, monastic biography, included 33 years alone in a cave meditating, Mm -hmm. 33 years. (laughs) And so he was coming to America to teach us what he knew which is nothing is, is just what I'm teaching you here. But when I saw him, he was just this kind of short, thin, wizened Burmese man in robes wearing sunglasses. I mean, he lived in a cave his whole life, so anything is too bright. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes in, he gives his Dharma talks, and I remember being just awed, like, what? I think it was something like the ascetic Sumedha. You know, it's like, what is going on? Is this <laughs> just did not compute. But nevertheless, there was something pretty noble about his demeanor, and not just the fact that he sat in a cave for 33 years. That's pretty notable, but that he survived. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to be like that. I'd like to have that quality of being that he had. One thing he used to do, he'd do group interviews. And up in M101 upstairs, he'd get 20 or 30 people in a room, like yourself, in a room with his translator. And we'd all go in to ask questions or to, to hear his teachings. And he'd look around the room and he'd say, Are you a doctor? And he would say, Yeah. How, how did you know that? He'd go, Are you a doctor? Yeah. Every time he identified every doctor in the room. <laughs> And they weren't wearing scrubs either. (laughs) But it was just a display of his mind, the capacity of his mind, just to give his teachings a little more credibility. That's how I understood it. And I said, that seems like the direction to go. And I wanted to become a monk. But I didn't know what a monk was. I I didn't know anything about it. It took eight years. For conditions to ripen before I was able before I had the knowledge, before I had enough wisdom, before I had the resources, before I had done enough my own mental prep work, before I was able to go to Burma, ordain, and undertake my practice there. Just because we have an intention, or even have an aspiration. We can't force it, you can't hurry it, you can't make it happen. But if we're patient and we persevere in moving in that direction, the conditions necessary for fulfilling it will eventually come into alignment and support your aspiration. Our practice is to be patient. Patient with the conditions that don't yet support it, but persevering in our efforts to clarify and pursue and to gather the the resources, mental, physical, emotional, financial, whatever we need to fulfill that, that aspiration. And so, while karma is one very important condition in our practice, patience is another. And as you know, it's patience is just invaluable, an invaluable and essential uh, piece of our practice. <laughs> to be patient with the unfolding of karma as we experience it here and now. And to be persistent in our practice to relate to it, to recognize it, to acknowledge it, and to relate to it in a skillful way, not getting bogged down in the unwholesome reactivity of attachment, aversion, confusion, and being bored and upset and frustrated and disappointed. They come. But if we see them as just another opportunity to develop wholesome states of mind, then Our practice becomes one of recognizing every moment, not as an obstacle to fulfilling your aspiration, but an opportunity. Karma gives us the opportunity to co-create our future. And the amazing thing about karma is nobody can stop you there isn't anyone that can stop you from purifying your mind and moving in the direction that you see would be most beneficial to yourself to others if you are patient and persevering There's no stopping you. We may not yet believe that. Our minds may not yet be as purified, as clean as they could be, and we have some self-doubt, some fear, some frustration, some disappointment. We, have, we still have attachments and aversions that bog us down and burden us and make it seem either impossible or too far away or whatever. All of these conditions are impermanent. They don't last. And if you're prepared to outlast them, patiently and persistently, when they come to an end, whatever it is, your fear, your entanglements of one sort or another, when they come to an end, then your aspiration as more support. This retreat will be, Deborah mentioned last night, the arousing of equanimity, this non-reactive, this balance of mind. And we'll be speaking more about it in the coming days. But the relationship between equanimity and karma is that the proximate cause for equanimity is frequent reflection on the law of karma. Frequent reflection on the law of karma conditions a balanced mind. Why would that be so? Well, if we think about the law of karma and the fact that wholesome states of mind, non-reactivity, non-aversion, non-attachment, lead to pleasant results, if we think about the law of karma, we're going to surely want to develop an unreactive or non-reactive mind. We all want pleasant conditions in our life. Pleasant body, pleasant mind, pleasant neighbors, pleasant friends, pleasant conditions, internal, external, mental, physical. Pleasant is just more enjoyable. Thinking about the law of karma arouses the interest in an equanimous mind, rather than, as Deborah mentioned last night, the excited mind. The excited mind is great. But the equanimous mind is better because the, other, the flip side of excitement is, you know, blah, boring. And boring is painful, as you may have discovered. We don't see the pain of, of excitement because we don't look far enough to see that the flip side of excitement is boredom. Both of them are contaminated states of mind, or defiled states of mind. It's equanimity that is caught, is in between the two. And it's equanimity that is the the non-reactive, the wholesome karma of non-reactivity. if we see the pleasant conditions of our life now as the result or conditioned by wholesome actions in the past we're more likely to take the opportunity to capitalize on those wholesome experiences not just by indulging in them but using them as an opportunity to develop equanimity so if we just indulge in our pleasant, with attachment and kind of blind craving, if we indulge in pleasant experiences, we're planting the seed of unpleasantness. On the other hand, if we are able to bear with pleasant experiences, with equanimity, we plant the seed for more pleasantness. The reason, mm, one way to remember this is, uh, I think in the in, in another tradition they say, to count your blessings. To think about all of the pleasant conditions that support your life. I know, we all have our challenges, we all have our unpleasant conditions, we all have our cha- uh, difficulties, we all have our obstacles, we have our stressors, we have... But we also, frankly, let's admit it, we're living at the top of the heap. We, as bad as it is, it is at the peak of what humans can experience and live with uh, on the face of this earth. And if we recount, if we recall, if we remember to reflect on all of the pleasantness in our life, we can see and we'll get an instant measure of how much wholesome actions we've performed in the past. It's said that even just being born a human being is a result of just mountains of wholesome activity. Could be born in some other realms that aren't so pleasant. And so even among those of us humans that live on the face of the earth or have over the last however long it is. How can we make best use of this opportunity? When we think of it that way, it's not just to gloat and you know, uh, indulge in it, but it's to recognize it and take the opportunity to bolster it, to, to support it, so that in the future there will be more or there'll be again pleasant conditions one of which is having access to the Dharma. a while ago there was a we were having a retreat and uh, conducting a retreat in maui and after a karma talk uh, the next day a woman came into um, an interview and She's, uh, she has become, and she, she was a very good friend of ours. Uh, she's a, a, a woman of color from the uh, Chicago area, and she's quite elderly. And she came in to me and she says, I don't know about this past life stuff, next life stuff, she said, but if I'm going to be reborn, <clears throat> I want to be reborn in the dominant gender and the dominant race. <laughs> And I said, why, you think white guys don't have dukkha, too? <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, okay. And I said, it's okay. It's okay to aspire to whatever, whatever you want, but don't leave out the wish to be near the Dharma, to have access to the Dharma wherever you go, whether it's moving around in the country or on the face of the earth or throughout samsara keep that in your aspiration because we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again and just like i didn't recognize it in my life until i heard it at my first retreat i don't want to be somewhere where it's not available to hear so keep that in your aspiration that whatever whatever it is you think you're going or want to go keep the access to the Dharma or availability of the Dharma in view there. We're able to understand the law of karma. We're able to even see some confirmation of it. We're able to make best use of it when we practice mindfulness, when we are really looking closely at the moment-to-moment unfolding of the mind, and then we see. We see very clearly what attachment and aversion does to the mind, what it does to the body. We see very clearly what non-attachment, non-aversion, non-confusion does to the mind and does to the body, and how each of them condition how we think, how we speak, how we act, and how others respond or react in return. Mindfulness is the key. Without mindfulness, we don't see. Mindfulness is this clear seeing. And if we just observe over and over, or continuously over and over and over again, we'll begin to understand more sensitively, more subtly, more comprehensively, the unfolding of the mind. Mindfulness is like an internal mentor. It is mindfulness that will tell you whether a thought or what you want to say or what you do is a skillful or unskillful thing, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, whether it causes you or another pain or suffering. I didn't ask for permission, but I'm gonna tell the story of someone someone's interview with me today. They are taking eight precepts. And they came a little late to the tea time precept juice table last night, just as the last cup of juice was being poured into the glass of someone with a huge plate of food. (laughs) Not eight preceptor. And out of um well disappointment frustration a little bit of anger <laughs> just automatic you know it's you know i'm not telling tales on anybody but cuz we could any one of us could do it she gets the attention of the offending person and points to the sign <laughs> didn't say a word but communicated a lot but immediately recognized how it might be right it's the right thing it's true it's like take a look but (laughs) the motivation was so painful you know it's obviously coming from some aversion some disappointment and so painful just couldn't escape it mindfulness will not let you escape the effects of your own thoughts. It will not. And as as difficult as it is to arouse mindfulness, it is the most reliable indicator to you. It will not tell a lie. It will show you how things really are, whether where you're coming from is wholesome or not. And no one else can tell you that. No one else can tell you where your mind is coming from. And so it's up to each one of us to develop this quality of awareness so that we'll know for ourselves, we'll see for ourselves, this is where we're really coming from when we speak, when we act, when we think. And then we can choose. When we see, then we have a choice. If we don't look, we won't see the choice or the decision will be made by habit and we know what habit is it's not always wholesome it's quick it's reactive it's just well it's not very well thought out often but when we practice awareness or as we practice mindfulness this quality of what's called ujukata Straightness of mind arises with it. It's another one of those wholesome uh, qualities that arises with, with mindfulness. It prevents you from deceiving yourself. And unfortunately, both fortunately and unfortunately, this is where a lot of practice takes place. We develop the mindfulness, and we start seeing more clearly. And it is so painful. It is so painful to see our minds. Our minds are just, well, they're pretty wild. They're pretty untamed. They are full of judgments and fears and angers and attachments and ambitions. And if we don't see them, we think we're getting away with it. But when you practice your awareness and you see it, you realize it's having an effect in your mind all the time. Anytime it arises, whether it's seen or not, it has its conditioning effect. But when mindfulness is developed and we see this, it is so painful because often we do not yet have the wisdom to know how to let go. How do you let go of your frustrations? How do you let go of your ambitions? How do you let go of your fears? How do you let go of your jealousy, your judgments? How do you let go of them? If we knew, we would because we see it's painful. But it's this place between the development of awareness and the development of wisdom where practice takes place. This is, this is insight. This is the, the terrain of insight practice is developing the awareness to see, to really feel, and to know for yourself. This is skillful, wise, wholesome, or this is unskillful, unwise, unwholesome. And then to act on what we know, what we see. This is is our path. This is the path of insight. There's one last element of the law of karma that bears uh, uh, needing to be known. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. So let me try to explain it clearly. It is said that to do something that's unwholesome without knowing that it's unwholesome is of greater karmic consequence than to do something that's unwholesome if you know it's unwholesome. A little bit convoluted. If you don't know something's unwholesome and you do it anyway, you don't know and you do it, you do it with reckless abandon, frequently, without any second thoughts, without any doubt, full of vigor and energy, and you have no regret, no remorse, and you just enjoy it. Every one of those is, a, is strengthening the karmic effect of that unwholesome act. On the other hand, if you know something is unwholesome to say or to do, and you say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway, as we, as we do sometimes. We just blurt it out even when we know it's not a skillful thing to say or we do it when we know it's not a skillful thing to do. But if we know it's unskillful and we do it anyway, we're a little bit hesitant. We have a lot of second thoughts, a little bit of doubt. We don't put so much energy into it. And after doing it, we have a lot of regret and remorse and kind of apologize to ourselves and maybe seek forgiveness. And all of those serve to mitigate the karmic effect of that unwholesome act. It is better to know. Even if you can't live up to what you know, it is better to know. It is mindfulness that will tell you. We can read, we can get the advice from elders and and seniors and other teachers, but it's our own heart that's gonna tell us, that is gonna find the way through pain and suffering to the end of pain and suffering. It's the law of the unfolding of the mind. It's not mandated, but we can begin to see the conditions that support the unfolding of the mind and the development of a life of fulfillment and happiness and contentment and peace. And it's a choice. It's a choice we make in every moment. And when we understand that's a choice, and we have the awareness to reveal the choice in each moment, then we're on the path to fulfilling our aspiration. And as I mentioned earlier in the, in the evening, no one can stop you. there's nothing that can stop you if you have the patience and the persevering energy to continue. So let's take a moment and let the words quiet down. As Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda about karma, he said, the ordinary man or woman sees events in life as either a blessing or a curse. But the man or woman of power and wisdom sees every event as an opportunity to gain knowledge and freedom. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's uh, 45 minutes for uh, mindful movement, and then we'll be back for uh, choir practice at uh, <laughs> at 9:15 when we can uh, rehearse the metta metta chanting again.